No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome back to another edition of Benal of America. Uh, I'm going to break sort of chronology here a little bit because we have a Christmas show coming next week, which is completely not Christmas at all. It was intended to be Christmas-related, but it fell apart like in the middle of of, of the Christmas discussion, which is why we're very lucky tonight to be doing this episode because this is the Christmas show in a sense. This is, we're going to really dig into uh, the holiday season, Christmas time with uh, a pair of very special guests. I had the great pleasure of meeting them uh, about a month ago at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville. Uh, We had a lot of fun down there. That was the first time I had the chance to meet Tobias and Emily Wayland. They are prolific Participants, you could say, in the paranormal world. A lot of folks, I'm sure, have heard of them before. Uh, first time we've gotten them on in all of America, hopefully not the last. And they are behind a new book that has just come out uh, a few weeks ago and perfectly timed for the holiday season. I'm going to hold it up, even though we're going to be on audio here. It's Yuletide. It's the there's this little part at the top. I can't read the singular Fortean Society's Yuletide Guide to High Strangeness. Uh, and Tobias wrote the book, and Emily did the drawings for the book, some fantastic drawings in the book. So I wanted to uh, get them both on the show, talk about the new book, and just talk in general, have some fun, have a chat with them after uh, getting the chance to meet them down in Nashville last month. So welcome to the show, Tobias and Emily. It's great to have you on uh, Ben All of America. Well, thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this. Well, we'll start out as we do with every uh, show when we have some new guests. So give us the bio, the background. Uh, I guess we'll start with you, Tobias. Um, you know, who is Tobias Whalen? How'd you get mixed up in the world of the paranormal? Um, and how'd you decide to – there's so many people who are aficionados of this stuff, but then they they just stay aficionados, and that's awesome. They're the people who are listening to the show right now, right? Um, but then there are a lot of people who then become – as I said earlier, participants in this, uh, content creators, podcasters, authors, uh, you guys do all that stuff. So, right. you know, tell us a little bit of your bio, your background, how you got involved in the paranormal, what lit that spark, and then what made you decide to be a part of the community, if you will. Sure. So, uh, well, obviously, my name is Tobias Wayland, and I am the <laughs> – uh, <laughs> I always repeat my name, just just in case. And <laughs> case. Uh, I right. – <laughs> sorry, it – Anyway, and I I am the uh, the editor in chief and uh, lead investigator for the Singular Forty in Society, and uh, that is a journalistic and uh, investigatory organization that uh, Emily and I founded back in 2016. Uh, if you can't tell by the name, uh, we take a Fortean approach, and if you're not familiar with that word, and I I don't know how many people are, then I can give you a, a quick 
explanation. Uh, the word Fortean comes from Charles Fort, who was an early 20th century collector of weird news stories. So Charles Fort would collect all of these weird news stories from all over the world. He would compile them in these, these sizable volumes, and he would speculate, often quite tongue-in-cheek, about various connections and commonalities and, uh, and what might be behind it all. And so one of Fort's most famous quotes is, one measures a circle beginning anywhere. And I've always taken that to mean that by uh, investigating any aspect of the paranormal, be it UFOs, ghosts, cryptids, parapsychology, whatever, you can understand something about all of it because these subjects seem to, to have so much in common. And so that's why we landed on that word Fordian. And of course, the, uh, the, the other word that trips people up sometimes is singular. I understand that we're not the only Fordian society in the world. Singular doesn't have yeah. to mean one. It can also mean unique or remarkable. And so something that uh, yeah. that we believe very strongly. I never strongly given in. any thought, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> I tried to make it so catchy me, that people yeah. wouldn't even like people wouldn't even think about it. They'd be like, "Oh, that's snappy," and then like that would just be the end of it. That's kind but, of uh, where I some... landed on it. Yeah, I never give it. I'm like, okay. yeah, when you said that, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, he's right. What is this singular <laughs> stuff? No. <laughs> Perfect. Work, working exactly as intended then. Uh, so uh, it, it, it can also mean unique or remarkable. And so we think that everybody's perspective is important in this field, right? Like um, because so much of this is experiential, you know, so much of the, the evidence we have is anecdotal. Uh, it seems sometimes as though the human mind is the only tool capable of detecting or recording the, the paranormal with any sort of reliability. And, and because of that, you know, individual perspectives become very important. And so what we're looking for then is not a, a, a singular Fortean society, but rather a society of singular Fortians. Uh, people wow. who are open-minded with that sort of holistic viewpoint on these phenomena uh, who have unique or remarkable perspectives to bring to bear to hopefully help us bring the, the study of these phenomena into the, uh, the 21st century. Now, in terms of myself and why I got into this, um, you know, I like to think if I wouldn't have had the experiences that I have had in, in my life, I probably would have been a, a pretty normal, if a bit nerdy guy, you know, like I, I probably wouldn't give a shit about any of this. I, I'd probably yeah. think a lot of it was, was pretty silly, frankly. Um, and that's not to deride uh, any experiencers. I'm an experiencer myself. That's why I'm here. It's really simply to say that um, it's because of the experience, uh, the experiences that I've had from a, a very young age um, that uh, that I, I participate in in this field. Um, ever since I was old enough to remember, um, strange things have have happened to me. You know, some of my earliest memories are just fragments of memories, really, from two, three, four years old, of uh, being terrified to go to bed, knowing that that when I would do so, that something was was coming for me, and so I would remember. Uh, waking up to the feeling of of being seemingly lifted out of bed or or hands digging painfully into my ribs or or uh, hiding under my covers, you know, like that uh, that tried and true oh, wow. but woefully ineffective method of warding off monsters that all children <laughs> try, right? Um, 
and uh, and seeing what looked like hands pressing in from from the outside of of that blanket and and that phenomena progressed throughout my my life continued you know and um and so when I was old enough to read and eventually ride a bike and and get down to the the library you know in the late 80s early 90s I would uh, find books by people like John Keel or Brad Steiger, Lauren Coleman, um, you know, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, all of these, these pillars of the, the paranormal community, um, at least at, at that time, of course. And, um, it helped. It helped a lot. You know, I, I would read about people whose experiences mirrored my own. And, uh, if nothing else, you know, if, if, if it couldn't provide closure, it, it, it at least, provided some catharsis. And, um, and so sometime in my, my late twenties, um, I had been, well, I, I decided that I, I wanted to, to try to contribute in some way. And, uh, so I, I began volunteering as a uh, field investigator with the mutual UFO network. And so I, I did that with, uh, MUFON for a, a few years and, and I had gone back to school and I was, I was getting a, a degree in, in English. And so I, I knew that I, I wanted to write and, um, you know, I thought long and hard about how I might be able to actually contribute. And, and it sort of occurred to me at, at a, a certain point that perhaps the best way that I could contribute, maybe the best way I, I could help people in the way that I had been helped, uh, would be to, to do the thing that helped me the most. And that was, um, you know, uh, helping people tell their stories and, and getting these experiences out there. Uh, for other experiencers, you know, to to yeah. to make them feel less alone, and so that's uh, when I met Emily, and uh, and we got together. We sort of had a, a matching skill set to to produce the things that we want to do, and so uh, we decided that creating the Singer the Forty in Society, and then me writing news articles, and eventually books that, of course, Emily has designed and and now illustrated, would be a, a, a way to sort of give back in, in the same way that had helped me when I was so young. All right. That was a very good answer. <laughs> that was, that was deep. All right. Well, how about you, Emily? So did you have any interest in this stuff uh, growing up or just, is this kind of like something you uh, got into by way of Tobias? Well, I always had a curiosity growing up. Um, yeah, give us the bio, the background. You gotta, you gotta play the game. So, sure. Who is, so, like, who is I, Emily Wayland, and how'd you get mixed up in all this? So, I mean, when I go going back to when I was a kid, like it's hard to say like why you like the things you do, but like I remember like my school library had a couple like, I mean, there were children's books because they're in an elementary school library, but you know there was a book on UFOs, there was a book on Nessie, and I thought it was fascinating. And, um, I grew, I mean, I, I always thought it was interesting, but I think just coupled with like, I grew up in a very like scientific household. Um, I was kind of more or less, it, it's no, you know, not to discredit my family by any means, but I, you know, I was conditioned to be more skeptical, but it, but at the same time I was like, well, this stuff would be cool. I think, you know, I think it's possible. Right. Right. So, like, I had an experience, I had my first experience in my mid-20s, and it, in short, it was a shadow figure of my grandfather, and I had, oh, wow. at the, when, 
when I had, and he had just passed away like the spring before, and I kind of came out of a out of sleep to see it, and then just was comforted by it and fell back asleep. But for years, I still just I, you know, I dismissed that as a dream. It's just kind of what I was. It was my instinct at that point. Yeah. Well, um, fast forward to when I met Tobias on our first date. I forgot what you were we were talking about, but it led me to bring up the Paulding Light in um, the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and that's kind of where we hit it off. Like he out of right out of, right off the bat was just like, basically, hey, I'm in this into this weird stuff. I'm gonna get it out of the way, and I'm like, but hey, I know about this weird thing. <laughs> and after uh, yeah. sharing my, <laughs> and after sharing she my experience with that point, him, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> After sharing my experience, and, you know, he had an exper- um, experience investigating these things. He's just like, well, I don't think it's, I don't think you should dismiss it as a dream. Right. So it's, you know, over time, just the casual interest and curiosity c- coupled with wanting to learn more in our, nat- you know, our, nat- our complementary skill sets, it kind of just all fell into place where, yeah. you know, he could do the writing. I can do the photography. My degree is in photography and design. And then eventually here we are with this book. So yeah, yeah. it's been quite a ride. Yeah. It's cool. It's really cool. You don't see too many couples in the uh, world of the paranormal and I should put you over too. You've done all the covers for the feminine macabre series, right? Yes. Yeah. So as well as all the illustrations here and all the, a lot of artwork, you've, you've done quite a bit. You know, with that people have seen in the paranormal, I'm sure. Yes, like I, I've done. I mean, I've done a lot of like. Uh, one of the things that I think that we are able to do is, if a witness describes something, I can do my best to illustrate that or render yeah. it to see it from their perspective. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. like a sketch artist almost. Yeah, usually, well, quite literally, a sketch artist. Yeah. Yeah, usually it's like a photo collage because we can usually like either go on Google Earth and find the location or find something similar and then render like a dark figure or whatever they were looking at. And then you can kind of get a good idea what it looked like through their eyes. Right. Well, because so often witness descriptions of uh, various entities are not extremely detailed. And so... With so little to, to work on, it's helpful to have someone like Emily who can convey so much with using so so little, frankly, you know. Um, and I, I do think it helps give the, the readers, really, a, a perspective on, on the uh, witnesses' overall experience. And I think a lot yeah. of the times the witnesses almost like, I mean, witnesses do try to draw things. But I'm sure it's a struggle for them. So whether or not they've provided sketches or not, we are able to kind of, you know, they and they can look at it and be like, it was like that or, you know. Right, right. Or no, yeah, yeah, it should be this way or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the new book. Uh, the, the, I I got the word, I got like, I need glasses. So I keep, I keep getting tripped up on the The Singular Fortean Society's Yuletide Guide to High Strangeness. What, uh, I mean, I mean, it seems kind of obvious. Like, obviously, in a way, it's like a Christmas book. That's, you know, but what gave you the idea to do a Christmas book in the first place? 
Sure. So, I mean, first and foremost, Christmas has always been my favorite holiday. I mean, most people guess Halloween, and I suppose on the surface that would be the the obvious answer. But um, no, it's really always been been Christmas for me, and there's always been this sense of of magic and and wonder, you know, tied to this time of year for me, even before I, I knew anything weird about the the actual holiday. Um, and so when I started seeing a resurgence in traditional uh, belief systems attached to, you know, Yule and Yuletide in the, the Christmas time uh, season, you know, I, I would see people, uh, you know, mostly regurgitating uh, various bits of, of folklore, which is great. You know, that, that certainly has its place. Um, so you would see a lot of stuff about like Krampus, right? Like Krampus, right, right. Krampus so hot right now. now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and you would just, you would see the same couple of, of facts basic for, for lack of a, a, a better word, sort of reprinted over and over again about Krampus. And I was like, well, that's cool, but, but we can go deeper, right? Like there's, right. there, there might be something more to this. And, and the more I, I looked into it, the more interesting Christmas became, you know, a lot of people have this tendency to conflate all pre-Christian belief systems, right? So they will, uh, they'll just assume that, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say assume, but what they'll do is, is they, they combine really specifically in like the, the modern neo pagan movement right they will combine the celtic with the germanic constantly and it drives me nuts like just drives me absolutely nuts uh because they're not the same thing and so you need to 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 really separate like Samhain, the the celtic uh, harvest festival upon which of course halloween is based from yule which is a completely different Germanic holiday. And these, yeah. these peoples were not celebrating the same holidays. And, uh, and I don't know why people thought they were. And, um, and so really in a lot of ways, Yule is sort of a, a Germanic Halloween, honestly, because it, it's always been a time of year where amongst the, the Germanic peoples. And so, um, you know, I, when I use that word, a lot of people get confused and they think I, I mean specifically Germany. That's not what Germanic means. Uh, at least in this context, um, what I'm referring to is the uh, Indo-European language grouping from which we get, uh, you know, the Scandinavian languages, of course, you know, the German languages and uh, and, and even English. You know, English is a, a, a Germanic language. Would and be so, fair to call that like the Western world for, to simplify it almost? Well, I no, not, not, that not really. That probably has its own definition, I'm sure. But, you know, because the, mind, the, the like Western kind of. The European area, essentially, uh, kind of, because the the, the Western, re, like the, the the Western world or or just Europe is is still too broad because that's going to include uh, the 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 Celts along with these Germanic ah, okay. tribes. And we don't and want that because do. you don't like the yeah. You want to keep as the song says, keep them separated. Right. Well, I mean, just <laughs> to be intellectually honest, we we, yes. we 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 just have to, you know, um, and so. Uh, yeah, so I mean, Yule was all is is, is kind of the uh, the the Germanic um, uh, Samhain in a lot of ways. In that uh, during that time of year, these these Germanic peoples 
thought that um, the uh, spirits would, uh, would, would be much more active. So, you know, spirits, fairies, gods, all of this stuff would come out of the, the darkness this time of year, of course, the darkest time of year. And, uh, and, and it was sort of a spooky, dangerous time. And they would tell all of these stories, you know, these stories that have given us uh, figures like Krampus or uh, uh, Frau Perkta or uh, Grula or, um, you know, uh, Lucy or, or the Yule Cat or, or any of these, these other now uh, famous ho- holiday figures. You know, they all sort of arose out of this, this tradition of storytelling during the, the, the darkest time of year. And, um, and so this has always been a, a scary, dark time. You know, that's, right. that, that, that's not something new. And, uh, and it's always been something that has not existed in the same tradition as something like Halloween until very, very recently. Again, like it's, it's only within the past, what, 100 years or so that uh, that that neo pagans would have have included both holidays within the the same belief system and don't get me started on neo pagans because I don't want to upset a lot of people but there there tends to be a lot of conflation um, of uh, of separate uh, traditional belief systems in the the, the neo pagan movement without a lot of consideration for you know things like scholarship and and accuracy. Um, and so, like, that was something that I I wanted to bring to this book as well, you know, because I think that's important. I think a, a, a proper understanding or, or, or at least as good of an understanding as, as we can really get, because a lot of this stuff uh, is, is difficult to, to track down due to a, a lack of written records, frankly, um, is uh, is is important. You know, like we, we should know where our our culture comes from like we, we we should know the origins of our stories as close as we can get but then of course more than that i had to ask myself where do these stories really originate is there some external source that has inspired these these stories and so in in digging into that um you know i i landed on a firm maybe <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's keep it in a sense simple in a way. Let's go. I'm going to give you a really simple question, but it's actually quite complex. But it's the kind of thing that I think, in a way, kind of what you're talking about, which is like everybody seems to have their half-assed version of like how Christmas came about. You know, where they're like, well, it comes from the Romans or some shit, and it's like, well, it's it's actually a big kind of. So I guess untangle this part where you know. The the 25th, the solstice, Saturnalia, Yuletide, it's all like all these different like things and people get them all mixed up all the time. So, I mean, and that's kind of where you kick off the book in the first place. So I think that would be sort of a good learning experience in a way for the listeners. Because as I said, I, I'm like one of those people that's like, I don't know, it comes from some holiday from back ago and they switched it and said it was Jesus's birthday and now it's about Santa. <laughs> So that's my version of Christmas. So, but, but, so uh, uh, elucidate the, the subject here for, for folks, as I said, untangle it, if you will. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, you're, you're mostly right, at least as far as, as my, my understanding, um, 
the reason that uh, that Christmas is celebrated when when it is is because during the the fourth century, as Rome became increasingly Christian, they wanted to convert their their pagan holidays and traditions into into something Christian, and um, and so they already had this this festival that um, was for Saturn Saturnalia. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it involved a lot of feasting and gift giving and general merriment, you know, it was a harvest festival and, uh, you know, harvests obviously, um, are part of the, the natural cycle. And so, uh, the, the, the harvest is sort of the, the earth, um, sharing its, its fecundity, it's, it's, it's life giving. And, um, and so I don't think it's too much of a, a stretch then to, try to um, maneuver that narrative into the birth of a messianic figure, right? I think that makes right, a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas when we do. But that's not the whole story. You know, like, there, for instance, exactly. uh, in, in, in modern uh, uh, paganism, you see uh, Yule celebrated around that same time, but that traditionally wasn't the case as far as we know. And again, there aren't a lot of written records. So a lot of this has been pieced together, you know, through Roman historians and Christian monks and, and other less than reliable narrators. Right. Um, right. But as far as we know, uh, traditionally, Germanic tribes would have celebrated Yule sometime in January ish. But uh, it was much later. uh post-conversion that a specific king, this was, uh, boy, I hope I pronounced this right, King Hakon I of Norway. So he was a, a converted king. He was a Christian king, but he had a bunch of pagan subjects. And so yeah. one of his edicts was, okay, like, we can still do Yule, but we're going to move it. It's got to be all of the celebrating has to be when – Christians are celebrating Christmas, and that was sort of the the opening attempt to to further Christianization, right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and it's obviously largely worked because you know most of these these nation, nations, or at least until recently, have been majority Christian. But um, but that's why uh, Yule was moved, and and that's why so many of these these traditions have been folded into Christmas. So it, it began with Saturnalia, uh, which was Christianized to uh, instead be a celebration of the, the, the birth of Christ. And then we brought in all of these, these other stories uh, in a further attempt to, to Christianize the, the population by moving a, a traditional uh, festival season uh, to this this Christian holiday, and so yeah. it 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 really is basically what what you said. Uh, it's just there were um, it just took a while, you know. There were there there were multiple steps. right, right. Well, that's what's interesting too when you think about it, because it's like I imagine being there at the time, and the king's just like, no, from now on we're moving. It's not going to be this generational this generational event, whether it's Yule, whether it's Saturnalia, in both cases, where they're like, no, now it's going to be on this day or this time. We're moving it completely to a different fucking time. 
and now it's all about Jesus um, being born. It's just really crazy to imagine, like, if you're just there that year that it happens. You're like, wait a minute, what? And then it sticks, which is kind of really wild. But I wonder, in a way, if that's – I mean, I'm sure that's probably a super simplification of it. But it's like I wonder if sort of like the gift-giving part of it's like how it how it manages to stick in a way, too, where it's like it's a time of – of bountiness and, and, and sort of giving. And, 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 and that's why they're just like, Hey, whatever the fuck you want to call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. Just as long as we don't have to work that day and we can have the big meal or, you know, exchange toys or whatever, like we'll, we'll do whatever you call it. We don't care. I wonder if that was just kind of the response, but it's interesting that they make such a big cultural change and then it's stuck for so long. And, and, yeah, like I said, it'd just be it'd be interesting to be in that perspective uh, at that time when that went down. Sure. Well, I I think that this is something that doesn't happen overnight, right? I, I think this is something right, that right. Um, there probably was some resistance to, and only over the course of of generations has it become something that that we would recognize as in uh, uh, embedded tradition. You know. Right. Right. So yeah. I mean, there were I, if. If if you look at, at history and and the specifically the the, the history of uh, of conversion to Christianity, it was a a pretty bloody affair, frankly. Um, there there was resistance. Not not everybody just yeah. necessarily wanted to become Christian overnight. Um, and so yeah, there there there's there's a lot more to it. But um, but I, I think you make a really good point because I, I do think that there's a reason that so many of these holidays uh, from separate cultures uh, are uh, held around the, the winter solstice and, and the darkest time of the year in the, the northern hemisphere, right? And that's because it fucking sucks. It's a shitty right. time of year, and nobody likes it. And especially before electricity, it was dark and terrifying. And Super the cold. weather could kill you. Yeah, and exactly. so yeah. everything about it seemed just supernaturally terrifying. And so it makes a lot of sense that uh, that I think people, especially in, in northern climates, would develop these stories, uh, these, you know, scary stories, but also develop, you know, feasting days surrounding this, lighting huge bonfires to – in, in celebration to push back this darkness, you know, of holding feasts and, and, and drinking mead and, and, uh, and just trying to have a party at what must feel like the end of the world every year, you know, yeah. uh, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. As long as you keep that part of it, people are going to be into it. Right. And I'm no expert on a lot of things, on most things, but uh, so I, I probably I could be very wrong about this, but we don't even we use this Gregorian calendar that was also imposed on us, and it makes you wonder if maybe the solstice, maybe if maybe that was fucking New Year's Day to these people long ago, before even in the ancient times, they were like, well, this is the mark of the the end of the year because the now the days are going to get longer again, so. It may be just such as it may be so super ingrained into us as a species almost that it's like, but it's interesting because you know we don't really go crazy for the solstice now, but 
uh, we've got, it's been supplanted. But the whole this whole month is full of festiveness now, it seems. So anyway, uh, I'm going to tag Emily in now so you can take a breather, <laughs> Tobias. And I feel bad because this is kind of like a softball question in a way. It's a setup to start the conversation a little bit. So do you have a favorite illustration? Because the book is replete with fantastic illustra- illustrations from Emily. Do you have a particular favorite of yours, uh, you know, that you did for the book? It's honestly tied between two of them. Okay, and that I want to know what they are because I have favorites too, so I want to know. <laughs> I'll see, it if, would I'll be... see if, uh, <laughs> if I got it right. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what yours are, but um, Odin and the Wild Hunt and uh, oh. the Yule Cat. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, let me find the name of it here. Let me see. I know I know exactly. Uh, where is he? This one here. Uh, Herdeskiller, which is the door slammer. It's on page 59 in the book. He's just a, this, this is a naughty little Yes, one of the yeah. evil lads. The way he, he just <laughs> looks so mischievous there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a, there's a lot of detail to that one. And also the, the elf picture is one of my favorites. Uh, and he just, he also looks kind of mischievous, but in sort of an Alfred E. Newman way. He, he reminded me of Alfred <laughs> E. Newman. So yeah, I love him. He's cool. And the Santa's fantastic. The Santa's like, that's a top notch Santa. So. Well, thank well you. Well done on the Santa. Yeah. I was like, shit. That's a, that's Santa. <laughs> that's a real, that's a bona fide, that's a fantastic Santa. Like, believe me, if, if you handed me a pen and were like, draw Santa right now, it would not, it would be horrifying. You know, we know we're near that. So. <laughs> now, how did you, <laughs> so how did the process go down? Was Tobias like handing you chapters like in misery and you were like at the desk having to, having to churn out the uh, the drawings. He's like, here are the pages. I've got the pages. I'm just teasing. Well, I think, you know, we started this almost two years ago, and we kind of, it, it evolved oh, wow. over that time with what it was going to be to what it is now. And I think, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I did Krampus right away. I did the Yule Cat right away. Like, I knew those were going in there. So I did a lot of the ones right. that I knew were going in there. But... And we, I had a general list, but as the book evolved and changed and, and we added all these um, paranormal accounts, you know, I added those. And, like, while I was going through the book um, laying it out, you know, I noticed a couple things that I was like, we need an illustration for that. We need an illustration for that. So I would add those. Right. So it's kind of it was kind of all over the place. Um, I would say the hardest part for me was drawing these Christmas creatures and people and entities outside of season it's very hard to get in the mindset Uh, in july right right (laughs) but you know having kind of thought of this book at first coming out of the holiday season and then leading into it in the fall again um organically i think it all just kind of came together um and like the mariluid in the back I just drew that. That wasn't actually initially put in the book, and then we decided to add it in as, a, as an appendix. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I really was uh, 
as I said, I'm no artist. I was really impressed with the eyes. You, you did a really good job on the eyes. There's a, there's a sort of like Thank a lot you. of the little so, beings, or the, the beings, like the people, humanoids or whatever you want to call them. Uh, were very, I was funny like, wow, those that are too, really cool. Uh, when I'm just doodling, I'm usually just drawing eyeballs. Like, <laughs> I don't know why, I just do. Well, they're good. They remind so me of like this whole documentary about the guy that made like the pictures of the kids that had the like the eyes. Like these were, in a sense, similar to that. I was like, they, they really catch your attention. So, well, let me see. I'm glad we they go have here. the Yule. Yeah. Well, let me jump to. I want to talk about the sheep squatch actually because that was sort of uh, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> beings in the book it's what what's remarkable about the sheep squatch is that it's like kind of a fairly contemporary thing it's not obviously there you you mentioned that it comes from the the goat man sort of traditions but then there are these people who are seeing sheep squatch apparently uh and i mean i've heard of the i've heard of the of the case so but it's very interesting uh that's not something you see every day Sheep Squatch. So, Tobias, what do you make of that as someone who's looked into these Mothman stories, who's, you know, you guys do these on-the-ground investigations and stuff? Uh, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to fathom because it's not like something that's – it's just like a one-time – not necessarily one-time, but it's like a isolated thing in one place where it's like, okay, maybe this is like some kind of really fucked-up bear or something. You know what I mean? I always try to go to, like, the first – explanation that isn't um you know a, a sheep sasquatch hybrid so but, but to talk a little bit about the the sheep squatch case and and if you and if you if, if you prefer you know you tag it in, tie it in with how it connects here it's in the book obviously because it connects to these ancient characters one being a uh a goated man if you will or a goat sure you'll go you'll go there you go yes um, yeah, you know, honestly, that's surprising because usually Sheep Squatch is my go-to explanation for everything. Um, <laughs> ah, but, uh, well, you know, that's you fine. We can just, uh, uh, agree to, to disagree on that. But, <laughs> but, um, no, yeah. So I, I, I wanted to include it because of, uh, uh, Grula and, uh, and, and Krampus, uh, specifically, but also you're right. Um, the, the the Yule Goat and uh, and and Goatman of course bear a, a striking a striking similarity to right. uh, the the Sheep Squatch as well and um, so what's interesting about these these Sheep Squatch sightings is they're hmm, I guess how do how do I well there's just no nice way to say it so what's interesting about these Sheep Squatch sightings is sort of their lack of overall credibility um, yeah they aren't sourced super well right there there aren't very many sightings to begin with um and so many of them that that do exist and i'm not saying that necessarily like they're hoaxes or made up or anything like that what 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 i am saying is their uh, uh provenance is um unknown you know it's it's in question yeah. and so you you have to then wonder um, 
about the the the, the sightings actual credibility you know and so, and so that's okay. all i'm saying yeah, that makes perfect people sense. people Absolutely. hear stuff like that yeah, they, they get big mad about it, and they think I'm trying to be a debunker or something. And I'm not. I'm just trying not to be stupid, right? Right. Um, yeah, no, no. You have to be, be like, realistic. That's kind of, yeah, that's sort of my take on a lot of this stuff, too. You have to be realistic about it, where it's like, okay, this, you know, this may not be the fantastic thing that, you know, we're talking about, that it might, you know, that it could be, but it also very well could not be. So there's nothing wrong right. with saying that. Yeah, totally. And so there, there are some some very compelling stories out there, but uh, again, it, it's difficult to track down actual firsthand uh, eyewitnesses, and and some of the the eyewitnesses that that do exist um, are not. I wouldn't even necessarily categorize their sightings as sheep squatch. They almost just sound more like regular old Bigfoot kind of stuff. Uh, but you, you see that on on TV, I think more often than than not, uh, you might have a show. So like, where the hell you know, did this sheep squatch come from? Then did this just kind of like pop up out of nowhere? Who, where, like someone noticed that there were a bunch of these and it became a sheep squatch? <laughs> right, right. Well, the the earliest uh, known sighting that I could track down was back in 1994, uh, right, right, and it was uh, reportedly a uh, involving a group of women who were driving near West Virginia's TNT area, which I'm sure is probably familiar to many listeners of the uh, the show here. Um, and so they were driving on an icy road, uh, icy road rather. Boy, I can I can talk um, <laughs> near the the TNT area, and they said that they were surprised by this large creature lumbering uh, out of the the forest, and so. Uh, they were moving pretty slowly, given how icy the, the road was, and they said that they got a good look at the thing, uh, and they described it as being between seven and eight feet tall, covered with long, shaggy white hair, and a head with a pointed snout and ram-like horns. And according to their story, the quote-unquote sheep squatch uh, froze momentarily in their headlights before fleeing into the darkness. Now, um, this was a story that I've seen plenty of times and I've seen it right, in, right. in plenty of places and I don't know who these women are. Um, I don't know if they exist. If they do exist, I hope they're listening and right. I hope that they, very, will, they, yeah. they will reach out to me, um, because yeah, this is very fascinating. Weird. It's very yeah. apocryphal almost where it's like, yeah, we don't really even know. Yeah. Anything about, yeah. Very weird. The whole thing in a sense, if you think about it. Right. And, and that's that's most of these stories. Uh, they um, have just sort of appeared seemingly out of the, the ether. Uh, you see that uh, a lot with uh, with goat with Goatman stories, too. Yeah, and yeah. Goatman really, really sort of belongs in the uh, the category of urban legend more than than legitimate cryptid or, or paranormal right, right. phenomenon, at least in my humble opinion but um but yeah you know that's that that's that sort of sheep squatch for you you know people by yeah. people i i mean internet stories will talk about uh seeing this weird large white horned creature and it usually just kind of comes out of nowhere and and scares people and then numbers yeah, off yeah, to go yeah. do sheep squatch things yeah it's very yeah it's an interesting it's kind of like a one-off it's like a one-hit wonder. It's like a, it's like the Van Meter mystery, but 
less, uh, you know, maybe less. I mean, they're both pretty well documented, I suppose. But just, uh, yeah, I guess they kind of maybe less situated in one spot, per se, because the Van Meter mystery is a creature. That's Van Meter. You know that. Well, she's squatch. She's just kind of wandering around sort of a various, you know, area sort of in the middle of the country, I suppose. Right. Sure. I, I, I think that where they are. I mean, I have to look. I'd have to look at all the sightings to see, but I always kind of imagine yeah, it, it's sort of like in the southern and also West Virginia type of areas. Apple yeah, it's like yeah, it's definitely more like uh, uh, the Appalachia region. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the probably the big difference to me, if you want to compare sheep squash to something like the, the the Van Meter visitor, would be sort of the difference between how stories uh, are told and shared and grow in the internet age versus how stories did that in the 19th century age of like yellow journalism, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that again, like, boy, I, uh, I hope there aren't a lot of true believers listening right now. I swear to God, weird shit has happened to me. And, uh, and I don't think it's all fake and I don't think people are stupid, but but Tim just happened to pick like a, a specific subject in <laughs> the book that isn't the most credible. So I, I have no, to be no, real about it, you know? No, I just, I just thought it was a weird thing. It's like, <laughs> you know, I don't, we've never talked about the sheet squatch on the show before. So it was like, Oh, wait a minute now. I do feel like we deviated a little bit from the Christmas nest of it all, but I was kind of, uh, I was kind of okay. intrigued by that. What's that? That'll happen Emily, what's sometimes. Up? This stuff gets yeah, weird. Exactly. <laughs> now, let's jump to, well, I, I don't want to get too deeply into the Yule Lads. Part of me was like, I kept waiting for you to somehow connect them to the Seven Dwarfs. I'm like, is this somehow connected to the Seven Dwarfs? I feel like this is of the same family somehow. Is, this, is there any connection, do you think, or uh, am I just crazy? Well, Emily, I, what do you think? We'll start with you. Oh, I guess okay. slow down, Tobias. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Emily. Yeah, we'll, we'll give Emily a shot. I mean, what do you think? For me personally, I think it's more coincidental. I think that um, small men, whether they're gnomes, Nizertonka, dwarves, Yule lads are kind of all across Europe. There are 13 Yule lads instead of Seven. Seven. And it is an Iceland it's a specifically Icelandic story, as their mother is that witch Drula. Now it would be interesting to perhaps compare like the evil queen in her hag form to like the dwarves, but we know those two aren't related. So for me I just think it's more coincid you know, it's coincidental because those stories yeah, no, exist totally all across. Could. Yeah. It's interesting the emergence of these of a band of little people mm-hmm. that's kind of like a recurring thing. That's what I find interesting about the book. You kind of point out these things. There's an interesting kind. Of, we talked about the cheese squash, how it feels connected to the Krampus and the. I cannot get that lady's name, so we'll just we'll just leave Gruella or whatever. It's a weird Icelandic name that I am. Sure, I'm mispronouncing every time I say it, but I've just picked I picked one pronunciation, and that's what I'm going with. And people can just make fun of me behind my back about it. Like what? It's Icelandic is is difficult to speak. I forgot I even said it. <laughs> I'm just gonna go with Gruella. 
So we'll we'll all do our own thing. <laughs> but um, I where, where was I going with all this? What what where did I start on that? Um, uh, well, we're still talking about uh, about cheap squatch and its its, oh, its relation. Like what, the, the, yeah, the the driving force of the book in a way is sort of like these things from the past, um, like the Yule Cat, which is this. Uh, you know, mystical, enormous cat, which I found very, like, cruel in a way. I, I guess it's because, like, the people didn't work hard enough to get clothes, but it's like the cat kills the people who didn't get clothes for Christmas. It's like your Christmas already sucks, and now you're <laughs> falling victim to the Yule Cat, which is crazy, and how how there are these weird big cat sightings nowadays, these mysterious, ethereal cats. And, and you sort of ask the question throughout the book where it's like, are these merely stories and traditions or are they sort of this overarching, are these archetypes or something? Are we, are we, is this some kind of ancient thing that keeps manifesting? And maybe what we're seeing is the manifestation of it in modern times, if you will. Um, yeah. I, I like that's I like that. That's sort of the driving force behind the book. I guess you want to extrapolate on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I can actually, I, I can use sheep squatch uh, since we've been we've we've been been uh, talking go. about it already. And yeah, I mean, I, sheep squatch should be our go-to. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I think that what's interesting to me is basically exactly what what you said. You know, and, and using sheep squatch as an example, uh, if um, if there are examples uh in this particular lore of people who have had authentic experiences seeing this thing and and i think there is some evidence to to believe that there could be you know i i I don't know especially in the the handful of of sheep squatch sightings where you've got people going on the record giving their name and everything uh those have a certain credibility to to me you know and so i think that um looking at those specifically we have to entertain the idea that that people are seeing something you know uh, they they are encountering something experiencing something at least that is outside of their their understanding and that could be where uh, the the stories of sheep squatch began and you know maybe some people picked up on that and uh, you know how the internet is started sort of running with it on their own, but there's still this core of of actual human experience that uh, that that represents the actual heart of of this mystery. And you know, so I have to wonder if some of these these Christmas legends didn't arise out of the same phenomenon. Uh, you take uh, uh, Gurula, for instance, right? So. Oh. She's a lot older than um, Christmas, as far as we know. Like, she first appeared in the uh, Prose Edda, which I believe was written in, what, the 12th or 13th century uh, in, in Iceland. But she wasn't associated with, with Christmas at, at all at that time. She was literally listed uh, amongst, like, this list of, of giantesses, right? And, uh, and, and, and that was it. And so like, that's yeah. her first 
appearance in the the, the Prozetta. All we know about her is she's a giant or something. And uh, and from there she gets folded into this this Christmas tradition. And so in in looking at, at stuff like that, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to me uh, to to imagine what could have led to that, right? So like people, she was obviously a popular figure. And so you can sort of see after that, um, there were uh, stories told uh, uh, about her. Uh, she, she appears at, at various points in, 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 uh, in language. Uh, like people use her name to mean different things, to represent different things. And so, you know, eventually this leads, her popularity leads to her um, being told in these stories, probably during Yule, I would imagine, that uh, that are then later folded into the, the Christmas holiday. And um, and again, what's interesting to me about that is where do these stories come from? Could there be an in, in external source? So uh, could there be, say, in the case similar to the, the, the case of the, the sheep squatch, could there be a, a core truth? Could there be some human experience that, that led to Drula or Krampus? You know, um, if people are talking about her suit horned entities today um, and, uh, and claiming to have real encounters with them, claiming to have actual experience with these entities, could we then assume at least the possibility that the stories told of these other figures, at least originally before they became holiday legends, also came from a place of people claiming to have real experiences with them? Right, right. Well, it's, yeah, as you were talking about Grula, uh, and her evolution in a way, it led me to sort of think in a sense, it's kind of like, I can't think of a particularly iconic, uh, iconic sort of, um, Christmas special. Maybe like the Star Wars Christmas special. I don't know. But it's like, it sounds like she's like a figure from then contemporaneous pop culture who gets folded into, like has her own, like at some point in the distant past had her own proverbial Christmas special. Where she was like mixed in to the to the Christmas stuff of the time. It's like, oh, now it's uh, we got a special Christmas story for you today, and we got Gruella in it. And everyone's like, oh, wow, Gruella, I like this. And then <laughs> it got more popular over time, and then she just kind of got and she became a part of the Christmas season as time went on, and people kind of just forgot where she even came from in a way. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon, if you will. Yeah, uh, 100%. Well, that brings us to sort of the main character of, of this contemporary Christmas season, which is Santa Claus. We're going to talk a lot about Santa tonight. Um, talk about the evolution of Santa Claus. Uh, this is another one of those things where uh, and I'm sure when you do these interviews for the book, you probably have to do this question all the time, so I apologize. But by now, you should probably have a road and answer to the <laughs> question but talk about the evolution of santa claus much like the whole christmas thing it's a lot like uh not what i said earlier was like ah they took a roman holiday and moved it it's like ah they just took him off a coke can and that's how they got him like you know you always got someone who that's their whole 
origin of Santa. And it's like, I think it might be a little more complex than that, Uncle Randy. So tell us, you know, the evolution of Santa to bring us uh, through the evolution of Santa. While you do that, I'm going to get some eggnog. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so despite whatever Uncle Randy after his sixth beer on Christmas thinks, uh, Santa Claus didn't arise out of some some marketing campaign. It's really just our modern depiction of him that that did. You know, we actually got the name of Santa Claus literally from the the Dutch for Saint Nicholas, and so like that's pretty easily traceable back to that that particular uh greek saint right and uh, actually that leads me to one of my personal favorite illustrations that emily did for this book <laughs> it's is the saint nicholas one because he just looks fucking haunted right like he has this yeah, look he in his eyes i'm glad you said that because yeah, yeah yeah if you had said he was like I adorable i'm like oh no i think he's yeah he's very kind of menacing he's a bit menacing yeah, he looks like he's seen some shit, and he's he'll he'll tell you about it. You There's know, bags under his yeah, eyes. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, but uh, you know, most people are probably familiar with the uh, the, the story of Saint Nicholas and and um, you know how he basically delivered gold to this family to prevent the father from having to like sell his daughters into prostitution, um, which. Is a whole. I mean, honestly, that could just be an episode on its own because to un <laughs> right. seriously to unpack that fucking story and all of its like societal and frankly problematic uh, elements um, would take forever. But what's important? Yeah, it's, for yeah, yeah, that's definitely one you read kind of askance. We're like, what? Wait a minute. Right. I, don't, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> but but what's important for our purposes is that there was this fourth century. Uh, I think it was a bishop, uh, yeah, a, a bishop who, um, uh, through popularity, you know, was elevated to, to to sainthood, and he had these stories told about him, and 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 the most popular one, of course, being that he he saved this family uh, from from poverty by delivering them uh, wealth that he because he he inherited wealth, I think, from his his parents. And uh, and so you know he he gave it to to poor people and in this particular story saved them from poverty and of course he didn't want any credit for it and so that seemed you know very generous of course mm -hmm. and um and so this has been a a, a popular story for centuries mm -hmm. right but it's not the whole story right so like yes Santa Claus absolutely takes his name from St. Nicholas. Like, that is indisputable. But going back to what we were talking about before, when all of these other traditions were folded into this Christian holiday, that's when we began to see the, the beginning of the Santa Claus we know today, right? So there are many elements to the modern Santa Claus that don't exist in in the stories of Saint Nicholas, right? Like, for instance, traveling the um, entire world, you know, in a, yeah. a, a sleigh pulled by by reindeer, you know. So 
yeah, it seems a, a, a little silly, but you can unpack that a little bit and see the similarities that it has with, say, the Wild Hunt, right? And so the, the Wild right. Hunt, there, well, there are uh, uh, quite a few different variations on, on what the, the Wild Hunt is. One of the most popular versions is that during Yule, Odin will lead this spectral hunting party. And, uh, and they're not the kind of thing that you necessarily want to run into because Odin is capricious at the best of times. And so, sure, if he likes you, like, he might uh, he might deal out wheel, and if he doesn't, he will deal out woe. Um, and you definitely don't want to be on the receiving end of any woe, right? And, right. Um, and so this was something that, of course, is very popularly told during during Yule, and people talk about, well, you know, like, if you hear the wind howling, like, sure, it might just be the wind, but maybe it's the wild hunt. You never know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so this is something that we see reflected in the the modern Santa Claus, right? Like, so you've got mm-hmm. these, these, eight, these eight reindeer, for instance. Well, uh, Odin rode a horse, Sleipnir, with eight legs. And, um, and you've got Santa Claus traveling all the hell over the, the, the place. And, and sometimes he gives out gifts, but sometimes he gives out coal. You know, like <laughs> right. if you suck, you're not going to get a present. You know, you're going to get coal because you suck. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he's he's a little more judgmental than St. Nick, frankly. Um, yeah, and that's I think true. That's, yeah. yeah, I think that's some some more inspiration that, that may have come from a, a – a, a pre-Christian figure like like Odin and, and his wild hunt, but so you see uh, these the influence that that these these cultures have all had in eventually creating this this right. final figure, and um, again, it really Santa Claus was not super popular until relatively recently. When it comes to a lot of the uh, the, the Christmas traditions, uh, well, like Santa Claus or you know, Santa's elves, stuff like that, um, you re- it really didn't seem to catch on until the, the the 19th century and you know into the early part of the 20th century, um, and so you you see that in the the poem, you know, the night before Christmas, for instance. That's actually one of the earliest, if not the earliest, depiction we have of Santa Claus as this, you know, overweight, jolly, rosy-cheeked fellow, you know. Uh, Prior to that, being based on figures like uh, Odin, Father Christmas, uh, and and St. Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus was usually depicted as as pretty gaunt, frankly, because none of those, like, they they weren't fat guys, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were never traditionally depicted as, 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 you know, big dudes or anything. So it really was that poem that sort of began that. But really, of course, what did it was the Coca-Cola marketing campaign. Right. Um, that really was inspired by the, the, the poem, The Night Before Christmas. And, and that really what, is what gave us the, the modern depiction, you know, of the, well, like Emily Drew in the, the, the book. Of course, that was based on the, the Coca-Cola marketing campaign. And so, yeah, you've got the large, you know, belly full of yeah. jelly or whatever, rosy yeah. cheeks. Full, full of jelly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the hat bearded. and all that. Now, let me ask yeah, you, yeah. who is this 
I should have looked this up. It kind of just, I just kind of dismissed it, I guess. Out of, I guess I've always dismissed it. Who is this Father Christmas character? Who is this guy? I thought he was, he's, he's not just England's, I guess he is England's Santa, but he's different from our Santa? Yeah. So Father Christmas, um, like I said, much like uh, Odin has influenced the overall like picture we have of Santa and trying to remember what the exact difference is. But if I, if I remember it all correctly, it, um, it more or less comes down to being another figure that sort of arose out of these earlier pagan traditions and is thus related to the, the, the same, uh, stories and, and traditions that would have given us things like the the wild hunt. I think it's just another yeah. sort of of iteration of of those kinds of, of figures and characters. Because what's interesting is when you look at at folklore and using the wild hunt as an example, um, there are so many different figures throughout uh, history and in folklore that have that have led versions of this. You know, and so you see it all the time. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, when it, when it comes specifically to um, Father Christmas, I think. I think you mentioned and, in the book that, like, maybe he has, like, some elaborate robes and shit. And that kind of gets, it, that gets, that turns into the suit in a way and all kinds of melts together. Um, right. And so, I, yeah, that's that's basically what, 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 what I was getting at is, yeah, he sort of arises out of that, that same tradition and um yeah it's just is is another iteration of like of that type of character yeah well i'm gonna blow your mind now because i'm gonna give you a hot take because you said earlier santa in his final form i i don't think we've (laughs) seen santa in his final form we're just living in this version of santa he's gonna keep changing he's like a game of telephone he just keeps picking up little (laughs) weird cultural shit from the time and so like i bet you if we're still around in a hundred years we may not even recognize santa it might be a completely you know or it might have some completely like when the fuck did santa get wings santa has wings now this is insane and it's like well that you know maybe with technology somehow they'll have to explain it that way or who knows but i think santa will keep changing but it's going to be like a slow process kind of like how i how uh gruella be, just morphed into christmas time just barreled her way into the holiday season um i think this will over time i think we'll see some changes to santa um maybe small maybe big but you know we probably won't even see them they'll be they're incremental it'll be something that's like in another generation i mean yeah that's that's how these things work right um you know, you you already see that uh, in the the multiculturalism that is currently being applied to to Santa Claus. Like Santa Claus yeah. doesn't have to just be a white guy anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. And so, as we get more and more depictions um, that you know uh, uh, are representative of of different uh, ethnicities and 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 such. Um, then yeah, that's 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 in evolution of of yeah. Santa Claus, right? And uh, and yeah, I mean, if people, I, 
look, if there's a billion dollar corporation that, that wants to start showing Santa Claus as like a three headed purple alien and they put enough money into it in a couple hundred years, Santa Claus is going to be a three headed purple alien, you know, it just, <laughs> it just, it just is what it is. That's, that's the nature of these things. And what's interesting to me specifically is when you look at the, uh, the experiences of, of people who claim to encounter in real life these these holiday figures, specifically somebody right. like Santa Claus, is they never talk about the gaunt, haunted St. Nicholas, right? It's always the fat, cheerful Coca-Cola Santa Claus that yeah. has no place in history is not representative of, of any historical anything, but literally was just made up by a soda company. <laughs> right, uh, right. And that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. See, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Santa is becoming more diverse. And so eventually that'll, you know, maybe that'll settle into something where Santa's like just completely different over time. Who knows? You know, he's a magical elf. That's part of it, too. So I, I don't know. You know, I hear different things about Santa Claus, kids, if you're listening. You know, it's like, is Santa an elf? Is he a person? You see these shows now. With, I like an old man. You see these shows now. With Santa, Now Santa's a guy. He's been cursed. Is it some kind of curse that's fallen up? You know, the Santa Claus. So it happens mm-hmm. a lot in movies. You got, you're stuck. Now you have to be Santa. It's like, oh, shit. All right. So it's interesting. What I find fascinating in a lot of ways, too, is if you think about it, the, again, like in a hundred years, people will be looking at our stories and, and sort of some of this stuff will stick in over time as it goes on and become part of sort of the global Christmas tradition. You know what I mean? But I mean, like in a hundred years from now, not everything is going to last, not even though people might think that's the case. Um, Certain things just stand. It's only, you know, so only only a few things really rise to the top and make it last two, three hundred years. You know, William Shakespeare. People still talk about him. They don't really talk about like the fucking thirty-five other people that wrote plays at the time. So that you know, something things will evolve that way. Now, I'm going to throw to Emily on this question. It's elaborate. I feel like she can chime in because I think we can all have an opinion on this one. Um, it's not sort of fact-based uh, that we rely on Tobias for here uh, in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> We've had to have Tobias explain all this shit to us uh, over the course <laughs> of the show because he wrote the book, because he wrote the book. So, um, mm-hmm. But one of the interesting questions that comes up, you guys talk a lot about the Santa sightings, and it raises the question of, like, what is happening here? Um, and And – uh, obviously, you can think about your answer to this, Tobias. We'll jump to you in a minute. But sort of you guys lay out, or Tobias lays out, the different various theories. Like, is this a manifestation? Is it um, like a, a egregore? I prefer the term tulpa, but I think they're pretty much the same thing because it's easier for me to say. But, yeah, a, a egregore, yeah, it, I consider them interchangeable. <laughs> Tobias is shaking his head here now because I'm sure there's some very – very finite sort of thing, but I, I just a general well, I think you're real pedantic about it. That's what I mean. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we play fast and loose here on the show. Just relax, buddy. <laughs> um, but is it a ghost? Is it the? Is it you know? Is it? 
Is it like a, something that's made up or whatever? So, I mean, what do you think of these tales of people who see Santa Claus? Because some of them are really compelling in the book. Um, some of them are really – we're talking like multi-witness cases, a couple of – at least one or two, at least one multi-witness case. I know a girl who said her father worked for the FAA. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, that's pretty wild. Uh and other sort of instances like that. I think there's a couple. Um, so I guess what do you what do you think is behind these incidents? Well, I think they're seeing something. I don't. I I think the egregore is an interesting idea, but something I've noticed just across all of the cases we've investigated is is that when witnesses see something, they look for things from their familiar their that's familiar to them from their world to help describe it. So if they see this thing that's unknown and it's as iconic, as iconic as, you know, the old, the old man in the red with the white beard or the sleigh flying or the reindeer, like they can, they, they go to their head when they, they're trying to make sense of something that they can't describe. I think it's only natural for them to, you know, find these things. So, like, I've, I mean, naturally, we've all had, I, I, I can only speak for myself, but this is, I feel like most children growing up these days, like, we had to sit down with our parents and have the conversation about how Santa isn't real. Well, he's definitely not <laughs> oh, real in this sense. Great. Okay. <laughs> I was going to mention that. That's how you found out. That's, we, we, that's one of my favorite questions when we do around the Christmas time shows. So that, all right, wow. Okay, I so, think actually cool. just this is a little tangent, but I believe it was I was like in third fourth grade, I think. And that's when other classmates were starting to say, like, Emily, he's not real. And I was right. like, I'm gonna film it. I'm gonna prove it to you that he is. Oh, and wow. then my thing, my parents were like, Emily, we gotta we gotta talk about this. Um, but like ah, I don't obviously he's he's not r- r- real in the sense of the stories. We don't have anything coming down the chimney. But who's to say that he's not real? There's so much weird right. stuff out there that, like, I can't – I know what he isn't, and but, like, I it's I think it's entirely, entirely possible for there to be, like, I don't know, fairy-like entities of some nature. Right. He could be And some real. kind of – yeah, he could be, like – he could be some very prominent person in the – ethereal realm that's like he's fucking santa claus so it's like yeah man i'm you know i'm santa claus i don't fly around do all that shit but they think i do or they say i do so that's cool and maybe he can pop in and out and just kind of you know yeah on a very limited basis like you guys point out in the book it's like well we don't have like a shitload of like certainly not as many like as bigfoot sightings or ufo sightings Mm -hmm. or ghost encounters but um, part of me wonders if it's just like there's some kind of like I don't want to say regulation, but there's like rules or something where it's like, look, I can only I can only pop in like so many times, or else people are gonna freak out and shit. So I I have a certain quota of of appearances <laughs> I can I can make each year. Like we're talking fucking two each. <laughs> and, Which and, is and, yeah. Which is interesting yeah. you mentioned that because there's a lot of different Christmas movies where there's some kind of like magical curse or trip back in time or like 
gosh, there's this really terrible Christmas movie called The Spirit of Christmas. Really awesome Christmas yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, it uh, is, it is bad. Movies. It's not Hallmark, but it's along that same like vein. Uh, like a pre- a but basically, almost, this yeah. ghost <laughs> can only come back for this time around Christmas. I feel like that's not the... I mean, that's the first one that came to my mind, but like, yeah, there's so many stories about curses in this limited time of year that when you bring that up, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, well, I was part of me was like, okay, you you did a a good job kind of convincing me otherwise, because going into it, I'm like, okay, these are, as I said, I I just use the term tulpa interchangeably with Egregore, but. For, for for the sake of uh, not driving you insane, Tobias, we'll just go with Egregore. <laughs> so I just kind of figured, Egregore, these children are manifesting Santa. But you make a good point in the book where it's like, okay, well, there's like millions of children who believe in Santa. So they should be manifesting them way more often, uh, manifesting Santa way more often. So it does raise an interesting question where it's like, okay, well, maybe that isn't the case. But – I find with the paranormal in a lot of ways, and this strangeness of it all, it's like some kind of recipe that we don't know, that we never, we haven't quite figured it out. And and that's the whole point of all this, I guess, in a sense. But it's like certain conditions have to apply that maybe even some that we don't even know. So it's like so when somebody sees a UFO, it has to be this time, and this thing has to happen, and maybe they have to be going through something too, and maybe also the moon has to be, it's like, oh, you know, it's just, and then that's how it happens. So I wonder if it, it could also be in that sense. Um, you know, that might be my only, like, that might be my explanation for how these things happen, uh, but where the Santa comes from, I have no idea. But I guess what's your take on, yeah, I guess these sightings and, and sort of what might be behind them? If they are, you know, sure. taking them at face value. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, the again, the, the majority of, of Santa Claus sightings are, uh, are, are unsourced, although I have at least one person that I have spoken uh, with directly uh, who has had uh, what she would consider like an, an actual Santa Claus sighting. And, and she is a, a serious person that, uh, that, that I find credible. And so I, I have to take her experience seriously. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, when it comes to the, the sightings themselves and, and what they might represent, I think in a, a paranormal sense, yes, you have something like uh, in Egregore, which, uh, of course, is a living thought form generated by the, the belief of a, a population um now boy egregores you know <laughs> like it's just they're so fucking popular and i it, i feel like it's the kind of explanation people use when they don't have a real explanation right. and so like, they're just like, like oh no it's, it's, yeah interdimensional it's interdimensional yeah. it's like well what does that sure. even mean fucking, right know, yeah comes to, you know yeah, so i i mean so like i i have some some issues with with uh with egregores you know of course with santa claus specifically first and foremost um most of these the sightings that that we had collected when people report seeing santa claus he's not usually doing very santa clausy things right 
Um, unless like I missed a bunch of, uh, of stories of Santa Claus where he just kind of lurks around people's houses being creepy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And very few people report anything like him bringing gifts or, uh, consuming milk and cookies or anything like that. Right. So like there's, right. there's very little physical evidence to support the idea of, a Santa Claus who believes he's really Santa Claus because like in, in, in Egregore would, would know, or according to it, it would be that thing, right? Like it would be like, no, um, I am Santa Claus. And so it should behave like Santa Claus, but you don't see, see yeah, you don't, yeah, yeah, you, you, you don't see mysterious presence. Like we, we, you never hear parents talk about, uh, presence mysteriously showing up under their tree that they didn't buy, right? Yeah. Like I, I have one story of that, and it's not super Santa Claus related because the figure involved really, well, honestly, looked more like maybe Saint Nick than like actual Saint Nicholas than Coca Cola Santa Claus. But, um, but yeah, so you, like you, you, you don't see the kinds of behaviors that I would expect. You know, if if this entity really believed it was Santa Claus, according to what Santa Claus is supposed to be. Um, so if it is in 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 Egregore, uh, based out, you know, off of our beliefs, you know, built of the dreams of children, then why isn't it acting like fucking Santa Claus like that? It, that part doesn't make any sense to me. Beyond that. um yeah, there are billions of children in the the world, quite quite a few uh, uh, of, of of which believe in Santa Claus or are aware of Santa Claus, and so I would expect to see maybe more more sightings. Um, you know, I would I would expect to see sightings across. If they were a, conjuring it with a, their with their minds, you're saying. Yes, if it was in Egregore, and I would I would expect to see it across different populations. You know, and honestly, the, the the idea of of Egregores to me too is anything that is sort of belief based, like in, in in anything, any philosophy or or idea that espouses the the possibility of of using nothing more than belief to affect reality is a little too close to prosperity gospel to me um, for me to not see some kind of problematic element too, you know, like anything that's just like, Oh, you wanted Santa Claus to visit. You should have believed harder. You know, you wanted present yeah. like present for Christmas. Why didn't you believe harder? You know, yeah, it's like, I, Oh shit. My fault for being born poor, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, Christmas like is that, tough. That's a really, yeah, it's tougher. Yeah, a lot of people right. do without these days. Sure, and so I, I I don't know that we should encourage that that kind of thing without you know actual strong evidence to support it. Again, I can't rule it out, and and I do find the idea of of uh, entities formed out of belief uh, to be fascinating because, quite frankly, belief plays a huge role in in humanity it's it's a big part of being a a human you know we like to think that we're all these rational creatures but really so much of of what informs every decision we make in 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 every day is based on 
a series of beliefs that we may or may not have, you know, real good rational evidence for. And so that's, that is fascinating to me. And the idea that, that belief shapes our reality, even if it doesn't do so in a magical way, it certainly does in a, a psychological way, you know, like, so right. there is some sort of effect, no matter, no matter what you, you believe, but I just don't think there's enough there for me to confidently say that, you know, these Santa Claus sightings are representative of, of an egregore. I mean, like, you know, billions right. of children probably believe in Spider-Man, you know, like nobody's out there seeing fucking that's Spider-Man. That's true. You don't, that's exactly right. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, give you, so, well, I'm not giving this to you, actually. I'm going to hold on to this, but I'm going to share with you a million dollar idea that I just thought of <laughs> when we were talking. Okay. Here, Full partners. All right. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Emily, listen now, you're, you're a movie fan, so I want your opinion on this group of paranormalists, they get together around the holidays. They're like, we'll conjure Santa. Tulpification. We're going to get together around a table. We're going to use our minds, beliefs. We'll create, we'll bring Santa to life. They do. But as Tobias was saying, he thinks he's Santa. And he tries to do all the Santa shit. And it's like, no, dude, you can't. And they have to, like, chase him down and stop him. And it turns into, like, a wacky comedy. Where it's like this, it's kind of like Elf in a way, but it's like he thinks he's Santa. He is Santa in his mind. He is Santa. He's Santa. So it's like shit. We just created Santa. Like what the, you know? He's like, I gotta get to the North Pole, and he's fucking around with reindeer, and he insults a little person. It's, yeah, this could be like an Elf sequel here almost. So no, I love it. I don't know. I love just, everything about. I had it. to get that on the record. I I, <laughs> I, I wanted that on the record. <laughs> you so. you heard it here first. Uh, there's yeah. one other possibility. I mean, I'm sure there are a myriad of, of, yeah. of possibilities, but, but, but there's one other one that, that I, I'd like to address. And, and that's the idea that what people think they're seeing isn't really what they are seeing, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, anybody who has been, Following or studying, researching, interested in in any way the the paranormal um, throughout their their lives probably recognizes that many entities seem to interact on a a parapsychological level, right? Like seemingly uh, on the, the the level of of human consciousness in in a lot of ways. And that uh, that sort of crosses um, every paranormal discipline. You know, you hear about uh, entities being able to take on various forms and everything from, you know, ghosts and hauntings to saucer occupants, right? And uh, and using telepathy and, and and things like that. That even expands into the the, the realm of, of cryptids, you know. And uh, and so it's 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 very much this uh, this this invasive theme you know, that runs throughout every aspect of the, the paranormal. And so when you, you see this thing that is apparently taking its image from the, the popular zeitgeist uh, in, in terms of what Santa Claus is supposed to look like, uh, according to the Coca-Cola company and, right. and now everybody, and and appearing at, like as that, but not really doing Santa Claus things, 
and sort of lurking around people's houses, um, that's some murky business, right? And yeah. so what what makes more sense to me if if we want to go uh, down this this sort of paranormal path for an explanation would be something that is manipulating people into thinking what they're seeing is Santa for whatever right. reason, whatever its yeah. motivation might be. You know, because actually it's Christmas included, time. It just came up with whatever, you know, it probably that's, I think that really might be, you know what I'm saying? It's like, look, yeah. I can't fucking appear yeah. as Santa like in May. And that'll really, <laughs> that'll really freak them out. Like, I need to just, right. just, because it's always like a fleeting glimpse. So it's like, just appear as Santa and take off. It's fine. They won't, you know, that'll be a funny one. When I tell, the other part of the ether when I get back or whatever the thing is. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. Like, just just wait till I get this. back and tell Zipzorp about this in our flying yeah. saucer. He's going to think it's yeah. hilarious. It's like I was down there and this kid saw me and I'm like, fucking Santa. I turned into Santa. <laughs> it was awesome. So, yeah, I can totally see that. Right. Well, because it's, it's not just Santa either. You know, I, I, uh, I have these. Uh, Easter three bunny Easter bunny sightings that I had to include because I don't know what the hell else I'm going to do with them. <laughs> um, but it seemed apropos, you know, considering what I was talking about at, at that point in the, the book. And it's, they're very similar to the Santa Claus sightings in that people are seeing this impossible thing, this, this life-size Easter bunny, you know, complete with vest in, in, I think at least two, if not all three sightings. Yeah. And um and he's not really doing Easter bunny things. He's not dropping off Easter baskets, uh giving kids candy or hiding eggs or anything. He's just kind of hopping around a yard, you know, and then quickly disappearing. Um and so it's very very similar, you know, in yeah. in that respect. It's almost as though again, like something, well, like you mentioned during certain times of year, it is convenient for perhaps for certain yeah. entities to appear as, as these popular figures. Um, you know, like the Easter bunny isn't even one is, isn't even a figure that has the kind of cultural uh, uh, connection that like a Santa Claus does, you know, like the Easter yeah. bunny yeah. doesn't really arise out of uh, centuries old traditions involving like actual historical figures or, or like, uh, uh, religious figures or, or deities or anything. It's just this fun story that we fucking made up. Um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, like that's it, it seems weird. Again, you could make the argument like, oh, it's it's an egregore or something. But um, a lot of that to me is just explaining one mystery with another. You know, because what you know, yeah. fucks an egregore. How do we know they exist? Well, what like you said too, there? it's yeah. People believe in a lot of crazy like. Like, children believe in a lot of, like, characters and stuff. You don't see a lot of character sightings in a way. So it right. does make it interesting and, and, and perplexing. Um, now, one – I was going to mention this when I was sending the link, but I – because I was like, oh, I'm going to catch him by surprise with this, but I'm like, uh, maybe not. So I was wondering, as I'm reading the book, uh, the Grinch. Does the Grinch have any sort of connection – to all this, because it's the Grinch has now become like I noticed it a lot this year. The Grinch, like you know, Krampus is really hot now. Grinch is like fucking in like Flint. Like Grinch is gonna be, it's gonna last for a long time. He's he's like the Christmas 
character alongside Santa. Like I like I was saying, like in two or three generations, it might be like Christmas time is populated by like three or four big figures. You know, you got, you got your Santa, you got your Krampus, you got your you got your Grinch, you got some other. You know, you got Bunny the Elf. Who knows? That's kind of how it works. Like these things just keep perpetuating and growing. So, but is there any sort of callback? Do you see any connection in a way? Maybe even just in spirit between the Grinch and these classic uh, folkloric tales that that sort of inform the Christmas tradition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, If you look at, uh, say, um, Gula as an example, uh, like she shows up around Christmas time um, because she's kind of grumpy and she wants to, like, eat children, you know. Uh, And so having traditional characters whose entire personalities have become centered around, you know, being shitty during Christmas is, (laughs) is not new. (laughs) Yeah. This is is a centuries old tradition of the, 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 I think the new thing that, that Dr. Seuss brought in, in creating that character was, uh, a redemption arc, you know, that's something that we yeah. don't, that we haven't seen, you know, that's, that's not traditional at, at all, but it would be, a, it wouldn't be a very good story if he still sucked at the end of it, you know? Right. So, right. Yeah. You got to make, but yeah, I think like it's, in a, it's, it's kind of a long tradition of, of, um, you know, evil Christmas characters. Yeah. Christmas spoil sports. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's funny how like these sort of just sort of general themes just keep recurring, but under different guises. Uh, you know, again, that's kind of like the thrust of the of, of the book in a way. Um, you know, it's that these different char- archetypes or whatever keep perpetuating. And again, I guess you kind of can see it in the Grinch as the as the as the spoil sport in a way. And it's like once sure. they kind of nailed that character, it's like the it's like the it's like the Santa Claus on the Coca Cola can. It's like once you saw that, it's just the perfect sort of character. You're like, all right, that's indelible. This green fucking thing. Um, well, what do you to that end? What do you make of the this Krampus revival, which is kind of interesting. It's very much a product of our times. I feel like people really are into dark horror stuff, so it's like. Makes perfect sense that this Krampus character would really become a part of the holiday zeitgeist in this day and age. Sure, I mean, I I love the revival of of these these classic characters. You know, I I, I love that people have a new appreciation um, for their contribution to the the holiday. You know, frankly, I I think it it becomes a much richer experience to include um, all of this, this, this history, you know, and, and Krampus specifically is such a a fun, interesting character, you know, like as sort of the, the antithesis of St. Nicholas, because of course, you know, if, if you're looking at, at specifically like the stories of, of St. Nicholas, like he, um, he uh, mostly just he brought gifts and stuff, you know, and so you would need a sort of opposite to that. Um, and although Krampus probably predates Christianity, although his origins are are, are pretty murky, 
um, he became that antithesis to, to, to St. Nicholas, that opposite, that, that, that person who, who was willing to, to do harm to bad people. Whereas St. Nicholas is just giving presents and, and thanks because Krampus, right, right. again, is one of those characters who doesn't punish people indiscriminately. Like you have to be ill behaved for him to show right. up and like whip you with birch sticks and then throw you in his basket and take you to hell. You know, like you usually yeah, have yeah. it coming. Um, right, right. And so that's, that's always in, uh, interesting to me. And then just from like a, a sort of cultural level, looking at the ways he's been used, like the, the postcards, like there are these vintage postcards that you can get from Germany um, that go back quite some time. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, they have all of these fun images of, of, of Krampus or our friend uh, Amanda Woomer was sharing yeah. um there have been uh, female depictions of Krampus where she'll be like oh, chasing wow. a guy up the stairs, whipping him for doing whatever <laughs> shitty thing he did, you know? And so um, I think Krampus brings a sort of dark levity to, to Christmas time, uh, a more sort of adult theme, if, if you will, than oh, yeah, a sure. lot of people have traditionally associated with this time of year. And I think that's why it resonates so much with, with so many people because Christmas definitely didn't start off as like kitty bullshit, but it's, it's kind of gone that way. Right. And yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you know, like finally we're getting um, a lot more Christmas horror movies. Like there've always been some, like I grew up watching silent night, deadly night and all that stuff. And those are great. Like they're classics, but nowadays instead of like, having to, you know, fervently rent that movie and then go watch it in your parents' basement, you know, without them knowing. Um, that It's just out in the open now. People openly appreciate horror themes during Christmas time. Yeah, you yeah. Know? And sure. I, I think that there's a huge market for it because, um, you know, people love Christmas, but we're also grown-ups. And so we want, we want adult Christmas. And adult Christmas can be dark. But um, but it can also be funny in like a, a grown up way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I think Krampus, Krampus, uh, good lord, I think Krampus really really contributes to that. Right. Well, it's interesting the whole thing. It feels like Christmas has changed. Maybe it's just because I'm older, or maybe it is changed. I think it has changed because there's always these the whole like ridiculous thing, like oh the war on Christmas and everything. It's like I feel like Christmas is obviously Christmas Day is the culmination, uh, and of course it has the celebration of the birth of Jesus and all that. You know, praise be to He. Uh, but now it's like Christmas is whether it's because of the commercialism, whether it's the appropriate multiculturalism, uh, whether it's sort of bringing in these old traditions. It just feels like Christmas has become the Christmas season has become this sort of melting pot of all kinds of of just holiday stuff, if you will. You know, I can't quite put a pin in that, but you know what I'm saying. It's 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 almost more like the it, it, Yule season, if you will. It's just a, it's more of a season of all this different shit that culminates with Christmas. Um, very far from sort of the idea of of what it had been when it was imposed upon people way back in the day. 
Oh, sure. I mean, well, from relatively early on, uh, there has been sort of a, a Christmas season, you know, and there are a variety of, of celebrations uh, really specifically between uh, Christmas through like New Year's. I mean, I, you were like, uh, uh, I say you, I'm, I'm looking at Emily when I, I, I say that. <laughs> like, you were raised Catholic. So mm-hmm. like, you're probably aware of all of the various like other celebrations that yeah. That take, like, take place around that time. And Christmas and, didn't really officially end until, like, after Epiphany. Right. See, that's what I'm saying. Epiphany. Uh, yeah, exactly. What, what yeah. the fuck? I was raised Methodist. I don't even know what that is. But it's right, part right. of this this long-standing tradition of, of the, the Christmas season. But it keeps expanding, which mm-hmm. I think is largely right. due yes, to that's kind of commercialism. What yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm kind of – that's what I was trying to kind of say. I it's think like, it's become less – yeah, well, the commercialism sucks, but it has become less yeah. like about the day and more just like about this fucking time of year and yeah. all the shit that comes with it in a way. Like how I busted mm-hmm. out oh, the sure. eggnog just now, how it's like all this different. I mean, I'm sure it was always that way, but now it seems even more um, diverse in a way, which I think is good because it's all kinds of stuff that encompasses Christmas that isn't just uh the culminate the big day or if you will and i i, I feel bad uh we talked about it's like people like people go without around christmas time it's a tough yeah tough time of it year is. so it definitely yeah. can but, be um yeah why well, that's something that uh, i think it's important to remind ourselves of um you know i mean every, every single year this is this is life this is how it goes right there are going to be people going without uh, there are always going to be people for whom this is their first Christmas without a loved one, you know. And so I think um, just going out of our way to express kindness, to to offer other people grace, you know, especially this time of year is very, yeah. very important. And it's something, of course, I th- think probably everybody listening can agree if if you're going to be kind to people, you should do it all the time. But we're we're human beings, and so you know we, right, we have exactly, flaws. Yeah. But if, if you're gonna go out of your way to do it, this is this is the time of year. So yeah, yeah. Well, I guess partially in a sense too. But I was trying to wrap my mind around there, where it's like it almost just feels like this time of year is almost returning to its pagan roots in a way. It's like it became mm-hmm. Christianity commodified this time of year to spread to sort of make all these make it become part of the christian religion but now it's like now the whole thing is just much more just about the time of year it's like yes of course it culminates on christmas day that is still you know that's still part of the tradition but it's also it's just the this is the the what it is this christmas isn't just christmas day it's like christmas you know it begins a Black sure. Friday, or it's not just commercialization. I think people have adapted to that now, where that's how they feel. You know, it's putting the lights up, it's doing all of the stuff that is Christmas. So I which, think what you're trying to say, if 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 I'm mm-hmm. if I'm picking this up correctly, is that Christmas so. is increasingly becoming a sort of secular holiday exactly. in season. Yeah, absolutely. Right, where it's it's not so much about the the specific Christian religious celebration as it is uh, the uh, practice of all of these traditions that you're right. Mm-hmm. Like 
uh, many of which come out of, of older pagan traditions, but of course were kept and, and folded in to the, the Christmas uh, uh, celebration. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly, even when it comes to like Christmas movies, when you think of your favorite Christmas movies, how many of them are about the birth of Christ, right? Like right, fucking right, none exactly, of them, yeah. right? Like that's, well, that's, yeah, it, I mean, that's kind of, Right, right. It's very, I've noticed that, yeah, where it's very like, people sort of say, oh, yeah, and Jesus, like, I even did it. It's like, oh, yeah, and Jesus, and also Jesus' birthday. It's like, yeah, all right, well, but yeah, secular <laughs> sure. is the, secular is the word I was, yeah, if I had had that on my head, I would have been able to articulate, but that's exactly what I was saying. It's become like sort of a secular, like, long-ass fucking, you know, too long, really. I think we can agree it is, like, too too long. I try to stick to right after Thanksgiving. I don't get too into Christmas until after that. At least you have a, a Thank bummer. you. Yeah. Agreed. Well, the thing about it is, because you got to wait until at least after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is its own fucking day, people. It exactly. Is I'm holiday. a huge Thanksgiving fan, so I, I... Totally. Yes. Yeah. And so, like, you got to... I actually... It, it... Oh, go ahead. No, no. Oh, I was, I, was, I, was, I was just going to say, like, the other thing, too, is... If there, if we want to preserve a sense of sanctity, right? Like, uh, if, if if we want Christmas and and Yule and and this time of year to remain sacred, then it has to remain fucking special. Like, we can't dilute it by spreading right. it out over too much of the fucking year, or it loses all meaning. It just becomes yeah, exactly. this commercialized garbage period where you know you're spending money and you don't even know why. You know, if, right, if you right. like you can't have steak every day, you know, like you got to save it and then you appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. So, like, if yeah. we just stick it to like at least after Thanksgiving, you know, through like New Year's and have that be the season and have that remain the season, then it's special. Then it's sacred. Then it means something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Emily, what is your most memorable favorite Christmas present? Oh gosh! I know that I threw that one out there, Tobias. If you have one off the top of your head, we'll 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 jump to you. But I, that's a real stumper to throw out right here at the end. Sure, of the I had um, I don't, I think it actually was a a Christmas present. I had this teddy bear from when I was a little kid, and uh, and I got it from my grandparents on, on my mother's side, and every year my mom. <laughs> My mom had made this little elf costume for it. And so every single year I would dress up this teddy bear as a little elf for, um, for thanks, for, for Thanksgiving, for, God damn it, for, for, uh, for Christmas. And I, so that's one of my favorite Christmas memories. I still remember, I, I wish I still had this bear, but, uh, this bear was my companion through most of childhood. And I remember it had, a little like scar on its muzzle from uh, my grandpa had like the, the cherry of his cigarette had fallen on my bear. Right. Ah. And, uh, and I thought it just gave it character, you know, like I, it's, it's just, um, yeah, that, that meant a lot to me and then dressing it up every year for Christmas um, kind of helped add to the, the magic of Christmas time for me when I was a yeah, kid. Exactly. Because then my bear was all Christmasy and he became an elf and we could celebrate Christmas together. So <laughs> yeah, if I had to pick, that's 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 gotta be it. It's gotta be it. All right. Emily. I think 
So like, I think this is something that a lot of kids don't do. I want to say it was around first or second, third grade, but for whatever reason, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to send Santa a Christmas list. I want surprises. <laughs> and, oh you know, back then I thought it was, you know, the guy that came down the chimney and my parents put a lot of effort into that. Like they, they like shoveled out little tiny pieces of coal and, they oh, made wow. a whole thing. Yeah. And um, one year he got me an, well, they got me an ant farm and a newt, pet newt. Wow. And those were things that I never would have thought of, but they were so perfectly me. And I yeah. think that was, you know, I, I make, I've made lists ever since then. <laughs> but I think when when people really get you and get you stuff like that, it really, you know, that's, I think that's a really special gift. Yeah, for sure. Sure. That's a fantastic Well, what's story. your favorite Christmas gift? Yeah, I'm curious. Oh, well, I, I'll spoil. <laughs> All right. For the people listening next, next, for plan on hearing next week's show, skip this part. But anyway, uh, I have sort of a recency bias. I had a, a beloved pet rabbit. Sir Ralphus, he passed away uh, a couple years ago, but I got him for Christmas about yeah. 12 or maybe 14 years ago now. So I just think that, that uh, and, and she just became a super companion. So it was like I, the years of memories, uh, all going back to him arriving on Christmas kind of like, uh, you know, makes it, makes it, makes it a particularly special Christmas gift. Um, yeah, yeah priceless. you know, yeah, really. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So um, now, Emily, I want to ask you about this because we talked about this at Strange Realities and you said that at the end of the sort of the conversation, you said, well, it's really about raising awareness. So let's raise some awareness. Talk about the butterflies, your, how you raise butterflies, because I find this really fascinating. You, you probably remember I found it very fascinating. At strange realities, I was kind of like bugging you, like, tell me what, yeah. that, how do you do this? How, how is this done? So talk a little bit about you raise butterflies, right? Yes. And just to kind of tie into what we're talking about, um, there's a lot of, I raise specifically monarch butterflies, the very iconic yes. orange and black butterflies. And they are heavily associated with the Day of the Dead in Mexico because the migration path the, the migration happens right as that festival is going on, that they're returning to the overwintering sites. So oh, it is okay. believed that in that culture that the spirits of the loved ones are returning on the backs of these butterflies. Like they hitch a oh, ride wow. to visit for the Day of the Dead. And, you know, coming right out of Halloween where we talk about, you know, the veil is thin, the spirits are visiting where Christmas, where the Victorian traditions, where you tell the story of, you tell ghost stories and you remember your loved ones that have passed. Um, I always think they're a very special tie-in with that. Um, but from a natural standpoint, yeah, I, I raise them because um, they are labeled as endangered by a classification agency. They are not um, protected by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, right? But um, they're a very rec and it's all pollinators that are in danger, not just monarchs. But monarchs are so iconic and 
relevant and nostalgic to people across so many cultures that raising them and sharing that online makes people realize how fragile our universe is. And with they, they slowly people, they're kind of like a gateway when people realize that they're threatened and this memory and this nostalgic thing that they value is so threatened it eventually does lead people to actually care about, you know, the world they live in. And we are, you know, we're not invincible. And so that's a big reason why I do it. It's not, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm saving lives doing it like the, from an egg to cat to be actually be a butterfly in the wild. That's only like three to 5%. In captivity, that goes up to about around 80%. It's not the number one way to save them. Like, I am not a person who wants to raise hundreds of them. That brings in all sorts of things. But the number one benefit to raising and sharing is spreading awareness. And that's why I do that. Everybody recognizes them. They're very important to people. So, Right, exactly. That is why why I wanted to mention it. So how do you – and I'm pretty sure I asked you this at Strange Realities, but I forget the answer. So how do you get the eggs – Originally, do you find them in the wild, or do you get the you, you order them somehow? Like, how do you how do you even start? I with collect. The raisin? I collect from the wild, and I'm honestly I have a very strong position that you should only collect from the wild. Okay. If you're going to order online, you have to be very careful where you get them from because they're a wild animal. They're not domesticated. Yes, there's butterfly farms, but. I don't believe in messing with their genetics, their environment. I try to keep them as yeah, close yeah. to nature as possible. So I want to help along and shelter the ones that nature already delivered. So I go and look and for you, little eggs and little caterpillars and bring them into netted enclosures and feed them until it's ready to let them go. And you can identify the monarch egg when you're out and about, like in the forest? Because I feel like, is that a specific thing, you, or do you just, like, get whatever yeah. butterfly eggs you find, and then you're like, oh, wow, it's uh, whatever. Yeah, they're very, they're pretty distinct. Um, I've raised black swallowtails before. Like, if I came across something cool, I might do it to watch it just for my own fascination. Yeah, like, not yeah. all of them need my help. But um, monarchs are only monarchs only eat one type of plant and that's milkweed so i know to look on that plant it's very abundant in ah. prairies and a lot of times i mean it can it's they're there's about the size of a head of a pin they're very tiny but oh wow i've been doing this since i was a kid so <laughs> i can pretty easily recognize them and what kind of shape i need to look for and that kind of thing Oh, wow. Interesting. This is such a fascinating – I really am fascinated by this. And when you mentioned the ant farm, as like a <laughs> light bulb went off in my head, and I'm like, the ant farm, this is like leads right to the butterflies. Is a, I'm, I'm sensing a trick here. So, yeah. Well, kudos to you. It's a really – like I said, I'm really fascinated by that. It's It's really – it's awesome. It's like gardening, but to another level almost. Yeah, and like I do – when I start, I've been gardening for a few years. It's a hobby of mine, but like, honestly, it's because of them why I started. The number one yeah. way to protect them is to plant more habitat for them. That's the reason they are declining in numbers. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, there is like a whole problem with insects in general, like you said, pollinators. Yeah. The bees. There's something going on with the bees. That's that's another one of those things you hear about, but no one. People yeah, just and it's actually go, oh, not it's even honeybees. Because um, honeybees are naturalized and they are raised, and so a lot of people, and the, you know, the, the ways the media, the ways the media talks about it, they'll usually, and they need a stock image, they're going to pull up a honeybee. It's recognizable, so right. people are like, "Well, I'm going to get a beehive." Well, that's the same as you're saying, "I'm going to help the birds," and then getting a batch of chickens. It's the native bees to this country that are struggling because also of lack of habitat. So if we plant more prairie, more wildflowers, more host plants. They will find it, and they will be able to thrive again. Yeah, well, let's hope so. But it seems like everything's going down the tubes these days, which is the perfect way to wrap yeah. up the, <laughs> the Christmas special. Yeah. Merry uh, Christmas. Everything's exactly. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad we could talk about that because it is it is really fascinating. Maybe sometime in the future we'll do a longer episode about this, about all this these issues with these the pollinators and you know what could happen if yeah i've heard horror stories yeah it's all a big ecosystem and once one thing goes mm-hmm. but like i said it's like then you know you hear this thing about the bees and then it's like oh it also turns out all the corals dying because the water's too hot it's like, yeah it's it's I, all it's, i'm getting biodiversity yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's like i'm starting to think maybe the planet's dying but i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to alarm anyone well, what's next for you guys? Uh, the Single Fortean Society's Yuletide Guide to High Strangers—they can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and is it, if that if that even still exists, but definitely on Amazon and uh, and at and at uh, singularfortean.com, right? I got that right. Yep. Um, so actually, and, it's not on Barnes and Noble. It's oh, on Amazon, okay. yeah. and it's on slash books Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah well, if they go there, they'll see it. They'll see it right on the thing, anyway, right. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know uh, in terms of, like, bookstores where it, where it'll be, but you know it'll be on our website or at something Absolutely. like Amazon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bookstores are, yeah, it's, that's why I said it. I, Barnes & Noble's, like, barely hanging on as it is. I'm surprised, yeah. It's, uh. <laughs> That's why I'm like, is that even still around, Barnes & Noble? Is that gone the way of borders? So what's next for you guys now that uh, now that this book has come out? Obviously, you want to relax for a while and <laughs> and, and soak it soak in the Yule. But, uh, you know, what's on the drawing board for 2024 and, and possibly beyond? I've got um, I've got some stuff I can't talk about. So, so I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be that fucking guy. You know, uh, like, oh, man, yeah. Yeah. so many, no, so many cool things coming stuff, up. Cause, yeah, I find it often jinxes yeah, but, projects. Well, like, literally, like, contractually, I can't talk about some stuff. But I've got, ah. um, you know, I, I, I filmed a really cool project for, for television this year that I can't say a ton about. But it's it's going to come out next year, and I think people will, will really enjoy that. And hopefully they'll they'll learn something. Um. You know, I've got uh, I've got a couple book ideas that I'm I'm kicking around. Uh, you know, one of which I'm going to collaborate with um, with one of my one of my my good buddies. Who again, I really probably shouldn't say too much, but every most people who are interested in the paranormal are, are going to know who he is. And um, otherwise, like we've got some appearances. I'll be at uh, at, at Dead of Winter in Alton in February. Um, let's see, I'll be. Uh, 
at uh, well, we'll both be at Haunted America in Alton in is that June? Uh, yes, end of June. End of June. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I'll be at Spirits in the Spring in June up near us in Broadhead, Wisconsin. I'll be at the the Rock Island uh, like YMCA benefits uh, Paracon in October. And folks, you can find all that information out at singular40and.com, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and if you follow us on social media, that's probably the the best way to keep up with uh, things yeah. as they come out. So you can you can mm-hmm. find the Singular Fortean Society on on everything, everything from Facebook to TikTok to X to Instagram to Threads. I mean, we're on we're on all of it. And we do have Gotta a Discord. You can find yeah. that in the link tree on our bio, in our socials, or on our website. Yeah, that actually, that uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That uh, that Discord server is is pretty active, honestly, mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of people in it who are very interested in the paranormal and these types of subjects. So if you want a very open-minded, welcoming, inclusive uh, Discord community to just talk about weird shit. Um, yeah, look no further. The Singular Fortean Society's Discord server is is fucking perfect for that. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving me so much time and uh, having a really fun conversation tonight. This was great. Perfect. Uh, perfect this for was the fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank really thank you so it. much. Uh, we would do it again anytime. Well, we I just may have to take you up on that offer, <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I want to thank you again. Wish you a very Merry Christmas. Happy holiday season. Uh, I hope Santa's good to you. And since I, I, I probably won't talk to you through the New Year, so have a Happy New Year as well. You as thank well. you. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy New Year to yeah, you and yours. All that good stuff.